things for her kind of changed as soon as she got to the U.S. The wife took all of her belongings from Nigeria, all the clothes that she had and the few belongings that she has, but took all of her clothes, threw them all away, and actually confiscated her passport and U.S. visa. So the neighbor had multiple conversations with the human trafficking hotline. Once she said, hey, this victim is willing and wants to leave, that's when they got in contact with one of the local coordinators for the Houston area. That coordinator then worked with the neighbors to create an environment where the victim could escape. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. The podcast that makes your law enforcement dreams happen. Welcome to the Go Law Enforcement Podcast, brought to you by GoLawEnforcement.com. I'm your host, Joe Lebowski. If you're looking for a job in law enforcement, GoLawEnforcement.com has the largest listing of law enforcement job openings. To help you get that law enforcement job, we put together a special guide for you. Seven inside tips to get a law enforcement job fast. You can get the guide for free just by going to jobtipsnow.com. That's jobtipsnow.com. Human trafficking is modern-day slavery. In this episode of the Go Law Enforcement Podcast, U.S. Department of State Diplomatic Security Services Special Agent Catherine Langston discusses her agency's role in combating human trafficking and talks about a case where a woman from Nigeria was enslaved by a couple in Houston. When neighbors in this affluent gated community realized what was happening, they came up with a plan to help the victim escape. Special Agent Catherine Langston, welcome to the Go Law Enforcement Podcast. What was your career path into law enforcement? I went to Sam Houston State University for my undergrad and actually got a degree in chemistry and double majored in criminal justice, then went on and got a master's in forensic chemistry from the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and was actually on my way to being a pathologist and pursuing med school when I actually got recruited by the Secret Service. And how long were you with the Secret Service? Uh, Almost 10 years. Um, And then in 2011 is when I transitioned over to uh, diplomatic security service. Is it unusual in the federal system for people to go from one agency to another? No, I think uh, once you get into the world of law enforcement, it's not abnormal to transition from, say, a state local over to the federal system. And then even once you're in the federal system, to kind of transition over as uh, maybe your personal needs change or just kind of your professional goals change. The U.S. Department of State Diplomatic Security Services, what does that agency do? So we are the law enforcement and security arm of the Department of State. Uh, We basically have the largest global security presence in the United States government. Um, We're in over 170 countries, and we have about 29 domestic offices across the U.S. And our our basically primary role is countering terrorists and criminal threats, transnational crimes, passport and visa fraud, I think is what most people know is as because the Department of State issues uh, visas for individuals wishing to enter the United States and then also issues passports for its U.S. citizens. And then we are also tasked with protecting our actual U.S. embassies and our personnel overseas. Can you talk about what specifically your agency does as far as protecting diplomats? 
So our agency is tasked with protecting the Secretary of State and then the Secretary of State equivalent when they visit the United States. Typically, it's like a foreign minister that is at the Secretary of State level. And then any other protectees that might not reach the threshold of the Secret Service protection, we also provide security for um, our ambassadors and then in individuals traveling uh, overseas. So if certain congressmen or senators are traveling overseas on behalf of the U.S. government, we would help support their security operation and plan once in country. You know, I think a lot of people that are familiar with the Secret Service and the detail with the president is the services that the diplomatic security services does. Is it kind of similar to that? Uh, it's very similar. So the when our Secret Service, uh, that agency obviously protects the president, vice president, and then their equivalent, uh, whoever the head of state is, whether it be a king or a president or a prime minister when they're visiting the U.S. And so we basically are at the secretary of state level and then his equivalent when they visit the U.S. What has been your roles? With DSS, we have our special agent component is made up of foreign service officers who are special agents, and then we're also civil service special agents. I'm actually one of the civil service special agents, so I do not move. I do not transfer. Uh, I'm actually assigned to our Houston field office, and I serve as continuity. I serve as the field training officer. I'm tasked with uh, kind of coordinating and handling the long-term investigations. Our foreign service personnel, most of their assignments are between one to two to three years, and then they transfer and they are foreign service because we do expect and train them to go overseas and work with our embassies and consulates overseas, whereas my role is to basically help manage operations domestically in the Houston office um, and to keep the casework going. And you are our fully sworn federal agents, is that right? Yes, we're all special agents. So what types of cases would you work? The typical caseload that comes into our Houston field office is passport and visa fraud, whether it be individuals who've committed fraud to obtain a U.S. visa and then they were, um, the visa was either issued in error or they've misused the visa once they get to the United States. We deal with all kinds of passport fraud, whether it be somebody stolen somebody's identity and then they're trying to obtain a passport in that identity. They're presenting false documents to get a passport, uh, various cases like that. I actually specialize in international human trafficking. I serve as one of our representatives on the Houston Human Trafficking Task Force. Uh, and our specialty is kind of um, with such our large overseas presence, we uh, kind of offer the overseas expertise and the ability to reach out to some of these countries and get support for our domestic cases. So the majority of our cases, the either trafficker or the victim is a foreign national who either came in on a U.S. visa or maybe circumvented the visa process. People who are engaged in passport fraud, is it often associated with other criminal activity? Yes. We had a case in Houston a few years ago uh, that made a lot of press where this woman had, um, there's allegations that she actually had hired somebody to kill her husband. She then assumed somebody else's identity. And then through that identity, in an attempt to actually hide who her true ID was, uh, she was wanted for murder. Um, had assumed somebody else's identity, actually became a boat captain, um, and had obtained a passport that way. Is it common for people involved in, in drug trafficking also to be getting passports under fraudulent circumstances? Uh, yes, we encounter, and we work closely with a lot of other federal agencies because it's the 
password is either in commission or to help facilitate some of these crimes, whether it be drug trafficking, weapons trafficking, uh, human trafficking. So, and a lot of times we'll see it too, evading arrest, or we will see some of them um, trying to, one parent who's trying to uh, get a kid and flee the country. So. So you had a case in Houston that attracted a lot of attention involving a Nigerian woman. It was a couple that was actually in Nigeria and met a woman that they ended up employing over there. Is that right? Yes. And so did they offer to bring her to the United States? Yes. They were, uh, Judy and Sandra Nusabundu is the couple, and they had adopted two children in Nigeria and had employed two nannies at the time to care for them. Um, they basically came to Nigeria, adopted the kids, actually came back to the U.S., left the two adopted kids with these two nannies. When it was time to actually finish their paperwork to get the kids into the U.S., that's when they offered our victim the opportunity to go to the U.S. with them to work for them. Offering to hire this this victim to come over to the U.S., it was a very big deal. They had a ceremony in Nigeria with her family? They did. It's according to our agents overseas in Nigeria, it's, uh, they don't always do kind of the written formal contracts like we're used to, where you might get it notarized. More in sense, their notarization kind of process is more um, having a ceremony. So this was actually, there was a written contract uh, that the victim and uh, the Nisabundo sign, and then the signing of it was actually taking place in front of our victim's family. Where And it's the ceremony itself, the way it was described to our agents in Nigeria who interviewed her family, was this was their way of reassuring them that this was all legitimate and that she was going to be well taken care of and that the agreement that they were, this contract that they were going into was going to be honored. The couple was from Nigeria. They knew that by holding the contract signing ceremony, they would gain the trust of the victim and her family. Because the victim was willing to come to the U.S., I would believe that the two suspects, they treated the victim well while she was in Nigeria? Yes, in Nigeria, she was paid and worked as expected, and they were uh, very nice to her. And I mean, she basically, her and another nanny were caring for these two children that they adopted. Uh, so the issues that our victim encountered weren't actually until she got to the United States. What type of paperwork did the two suspects need to obtain in order for this newly hired nanny to be able to come and work in the United States? So the nanny should have come in on a different type of visa if she was actually expected to work for the New Segundos. Judy, actually, through his own admission, got our victim her visa by making material false statements on her visa application. He brought her in as a tourist non-immigrant visa. Individuals who come in on tourist visas aren't allowed to work, uh, so she was actually not authorized to work. Uh, if or when individuals come into the U.S. on any type of employment-based visa, we actually, the Department of State will actually look over their employment contract and ensure that it's actually meeting U.S. labor laws actually as a measure to prevent um, individuals being in a, a forced labor or an exploitive situation. Some, depending on what type of visa, can actually go where it actually takes Department of Labor actually certifying them first in terms of like the employment before we would actually even issue them the visa. 
Did the couple claim that the victim was a relative of theirs? Yes. So the Trudy actually alleged on the visa application that she was a relative and that she would be attending a graduation ceremony for one of his older children. So the victim, I would have to believe, is excited about this new opportunity in the United States. What was the first thing that happened that kind of made things go bad? Well, for the victim, just to back up a hair, so the victim, too, at that time, she, at one point in Nigeria, actually owned her own business, uh, kind of a dry cleaning stand or a laundry service. She had gotten in a motorcycle accident in Nigeria and actually had broken her arm, and then it had healed improperly, where if you looked at her, it almost looked as if she had two elbows. So... At that point, when the Nisabundos found her as a nanny, that was kind of the only work that she could do because she no longer could work at her laundry service. So uh, they were paying her. They offered to pay her more. It was going to be for a specific period of time. And they also told her that they were going to fix her arm. So for her, this was going to be a great opportunity to get proper medical treatment and to make some money and to get some education and then hopefully be able to open up a business when she was done working for the family. So when the victim came over, what were the conditions like that she was living in and working in? The things for her kind of changed as soon as she got to the U.S. Sandra, the wife, took all of her belongings from Nigeria, all the clothes that she had and the few belongings that she has, minus her Bible, um, but took all of her clothes, threw them all away, gave her something else to wear, and actually confiscated her passport and U.S. visa. And then once she was in the house, the conditions just kind of changed. So she wasn't provided her own room. She didn't have her own bathroom. She actually had to sleep on the floor in the room where the toddler slept. What type of food was she allowed to eat? The victim was only allowed to eat leftovers, and even some leftovers were deemed too good for her. So if they had actually cooked a nice meat at dinner, then she was actually only afforded like all the leftovers of the side dishes. She wanted milk. She had to strain it from the kid's cereal. She had no choice on what she was allowed to eat, and she wasn't allowed to eat. Uh, everything had to either be reheated or she had to eat basically like cold leftovers. Would the couple allow her to take hot showers? No. The one time that she actually tried to, because uh, she was given a cap to wear over her head uh, all the time, which we have reports from neighbors who that's kind of what they remember. She was always wearing the same thing. She always had this cap on her head. It's actually causing her a lot of irritation. So there was a time that she actually tried to take a hot shower and just kind of scrub her head. One of the children, one of the older children observed her, called Sandra, who then got on the phone with her and was screaming at her and telling her that she's not allowed to use the hot water in the house. Was the victim allowed to use the phone or communicate with her family in Nigeria in any way? No. Once she got to the U.S., uh, kind of all communication with her family was ceased. Uh, so she had no communication with them. She speaks the language Igbo, um, and she speaks a little bit of English. It's obviously uh, gotten better since she has been removed from her situation. But at that time, uh, she didn't read or write English. So even if she had access to a computer, she just didn't have the knowledge of what to do with it. She's never had an email address came from a very kind of impoverished village in Nigeria, was taken to a bigger city when she worked for them in Nigeria. But 
I mean, her first time, her first experience in the U.S., and this is her first time ever seeing an escalator. Um, this is some of these things that we just take for granted. These were very new, kind of very overwhelming experiences for her. So the victim is sleeping on the floor, eating leftovers, can't use the hot water. How many days a week was she made to work? She worked every day. Uh, and her schedule just didn't change. She had to get up before the rest of the family, do all the, like, you know, cooking and cleaning and caring for the younger kids. And then she was usually the last one to go to bed. And then, as you can imagine, most toddlers uh, don't routinely sleep through the night. So uh, her time in the house was, she never really had time off. So if there was ever an issue with a kid or an issue at the house, she was the one that had to deal with it. Did the victim have any contact with people outside of the house? She was permitted to go to walk the younger children uh, usually twice a day. And she would just walk this one block radius around uh, where their house was. And there was a neighbor who was recovering from knee surgery at the time who started joining her and the two toddlers on this walk that she would make uh, once or twice a day. And this is a nice neighborhood. This is a very nice, affluent, gated community. So this neighbor who's recovering from the knee surgery and is occasionally walking with the victims, did it get her attention? Yes. So our victim was very reluctant at the very beginning to kind of talk about herself. The neighbor is uh, quite the chatty Kathy. I think probably did most of the talking during their uh, initial interactions, but then slowly started seeing things that made her question what was going on and it was more of a question and answer like she would ask the victim questions and then just the way that the victim responded at the time is what kind of started giving her pause in terms of like days off or if she had friends in the neighborhood um, and that kind of stuff so this was our victim never made a outcry to the neighbor for help and said that she was in an exploitive situation this was more a neighbor kind of questioning and noticing that her shoes were too big and didn't seem to fit and that she always was in the same clothes and that her skin didn't seem kind of moisturized. I mean, just kind of, she looked ashy and um, just her hair was always in kind of a hairnet. So noticing some of those things is when she then started kind of questioning what was going on um, in this house basically across the street from them. So as she starts asking more questions, what was the next step that the concerned neighbor did? So like a lot of people that might be in a similar situation, you are going to self-doubt yourself. You don't want to get involved. You question if maybe this is a cultural thing that you just don't understand. So the neighbor kind of very unsure what to do actually came across a poster for the human trafficking hotline. And that's when she called and we cannot preach this enough to people. If you see something, say something. And if you don't know what you're seeing, please still call, talk to somebody, and they can walk you through it. So she called the National Human Trafficking Hotline. They basically gave her some stuff to ask the victim, um, ask if she's getting paid, ask if she has access to her travel documents, ask if she has access to her family, ask about how much access she has outside of the house. Just some of these questions are neighbor very unsure of herself, actually took some detailed notes of 
what to kind of ask the victim. And then in some follow-up conversations while they're walking around the neighborhood was asking. Um, and our victim at that time was very reluctant to say anything negative about the Nusibunu. She just didn't want to get anybody in trouble. She was very fearful of them. And uh, also at this time had assumed that she was getting paid. And she was almost sadly accepting of what she was enduring because she at least believed that there was going to be an out and at the end she was at least going to have some money and then she'd be able to take care of herself um, and provide for herself, you know, back in Nigeria. So was the victim being paid? No, the victim was not being paid. How was it discovered that this couple was not paying the victim? The neighbor was provided a phone. They were able to contact our victim's bank in Nigeria, and the bank was able to tell our victim over the phone what her balance was, which she knew was the exact balance that it was uh, two years prior or almost two years prior when she had left Nigeria. So the victim is enduring these horrible conditions, thinking that I'm putting up with this, I'm making money. Once she learns that she's not even being paid, was that kind of a tipping point? That was the last straw for her. She was so concerned when the neighbor was initially talking to her. Um, and when the neighbor kind of mentioned something about maybe having her leave or getting into a better situation, her concern was for those little children. That was always her biggest concern. And she didn't want to do anything that would jeopardize their safety and just worried if she wasn't going to be there, who would possibly take care of them? Um, it wasn't until she discovered that she wasn't being paid that that tipped the scale for her, and then she realized that she was getting nothing out of this situation. The amount of money that the couple promised the victim, the amount of money they were not in fact paying, $100 a month. They weren't even paying the victim the $100 a month they owed her. So once the victim was ready to leave that situation. What was the next step in taking action to get her out of there? So the neighbor had multiple conversations with the human trafficking hotline. Uh, once she said, hey, this victim is willing and wants to leave, that's when they got in contact with one of the local coordinators for the Houston area. That coordinator then worked with the neighbor's to create an environment where the victim could escape. So now other neighbors have been brought in for the plan. How many other neighbors were there that were now part of this? Three. The neighbors were ready to help the victim escape. Now they needed one thing, a plan. The plan is they would create some type of alert for the victim to know it's time and safe to leave. Then they had lookouts and they had cars staged that once she walked over to a safe area, the car would be able to pick her up and then drop her off with the victim coordinator. And these are obviously not law enforcement. They had no idea what this couple was up to. They had no idea what they were going to do to stop them if they, if they found out about this plan. Correct. So what actually unfolded? So we had one neighbor who stashed a car um, by a dumpster at a, um, a short distance away. 
you had another neighbor who used the lawnmower to alert the victim that it was time to come out because the victim can't tell time. So there wasn't a way to just say at a specific time, come out of the house. So they did an audible alert for her. And then we had other neighbors that acted as lookouts on the street in the event that Judy and or Sandra came out. They were supposed to create a distraction so the victim would still be able to leave. So when the lawnmower comes on, the victim walks out of the house? Yes. So the victim came. She had already previously stashed a bag and behind a tree and basically came out in her flip-flops that didn't fit her and basically grabbed her bag and then ran down the street to where the stash car was. And obviously the neighbors are waiting in that getaway car. Yes. And what happens next? And then the neighbor then takes her over to the victim witness coordinator, who is kind of the local contact for the National Human Trafficking Hotline, and then basically took her to a shelter at that point. Do you know when the couple found out that the victim had left? That evening, one of the children was walking the neighborhood looking for the victim um, in a nearby park and what have you. And and that child ended up encountering a constable uh, who was asking what was going on. That's when they said, hey, we can't find our nanny. We're not sure within the day when they found out, but we do know at least later on in the day, they did make some attempts to actually go and find her. And I presume that they were not happy about the victim getting away. Correct. So now you have the the victim hopefully in, in a safe location. Or How does the investigation begin? So it's twofold. So the first one was uh, that constable actually referred the case over to a detective. They had actually, unbeknownst to us at the time, had actually gone and filed a missing person report on behalf of Judy at that time. Uh, And he basically said our nanny left, but also relayed to the detective that she has no friends. She had no phone. uh, He helped her get to the U.S. She was their nanny. We ended up getting that report later. For us, it was a matter of uh, going and speaking with her and getting her side of the story, how she came to the U.S., what were her living and working conditions like, Uh, What were her expectations? What was she told? What was she promised? And then what were her realities? What were kind of the elements that you needed to establish in this case? So for forced labor or trafficking cases, you're looking for elements of force, fraud, or coercion. And so for this, it, it comes into play of what were you told, but then what was the reality? So she was told that she would come and that she would just care for the children and that she would be paid. In reality, she came to the U.S. She was never paid, but then she was also forced to do all of the cooking, all of the cleaning, endured long hours in excess of what is lawful for an individual to work in the U.S., but was also never compensated and never properly compensated in terms of just her living conditions as well. I mean, she slept on a mat on the floor of a room with two toddlers. She didn't have access to shampoo and basic toiletries wasn't allowed to have hot showers, didn't have access to medical treatment. These are the things that you look for. And then also what is compelling her to stay? Like what is the force that is or what element of coercion is used to keep her in that situation? Uh, So some of this is she doesn't speak the language. She doesn't know the area. She's basically in a gated community. She comes from a country where there's a fear of law enforcement due to potential corruption or what have you. 
And then this was all kind of used to create this environment where she wasn't free to go. And even if she had the capability to leave, she didn't know anybody else there. She was never really exposed to anybody who could help her until this one neighbor kind of helped free her from her situation. With the victim being from Nigeria, did your agency use resources in Nigeria for the case? Yes, we had an amazing agent, Dan Parrott, who was the assistant regional security officer in charge of investigations in Lagos, Nigeria at the time. And he and his criminal fraud investigator were amazing. We sent them so many requests to gain information in Nigeria. A lot of people think when something is outside the scope or the borders of the United States, we have no access to it. Whereas they were able to take an armored motorcade, travel hours up to northern Nigeria. They located our victim's family. The transformer in the village actually went out when they were there, so they were having to interview by flashlight. But they were able to corroborate so many statements from our victim. Our victim was basically sequestered from her family once she got to the U.S. So for us, it was great corroboration because you had her story. She was never able to reach back out to her family. Uh, where there wouldn't be any questions that maybe they coached or they agreed upon some story. So when our agents went and spoke with their family, that's the that's the first time in years that anybody had actually heard of her. So and then when those two stories match, it just lends a lot more credibility to what happened. And you said that your agents in Nigeria traveled by armored motorcade. What was the reason for that? Some of the areas that they had to traverse just were not the safest. So out of abundance of caution and for safety for themselves, that's how they traveled in the country at the time. But they were also able to also corroborate officially that she was never paid on her through bank records. They were also able to, Judy himself actually not only fabricated information on her visa application, but actually obtained a passport for her just prior to her getting her visa that actually had a correct incorrect birthday for her. So we were actually able through our agents in Nigeria and through the criminal fraud investigator able to prove what her actual birthday was, which put her at a lot younger than what he was actually alleging on her paperwork. Did the case go to trial? No, the case did not go to trial. They ended up pleading. Shudi pled to visa fraud and then Sandra pled to unlawful conduct with respect to documents and furtherance of forced labor. What was the sentence that they received? They were sentenced each to seven months in jail, seven months in home confinement, plus three years of probation. They will each serve consecutively as opposed to concurrently since they still have um, minor children at home. And then they were ordered to pay over $121,000 in restitution. How long did the victim endure this? It was for two years. During the two years that the victim was in the situation, how was her health impacted by the the living conditions? So I think just the emotional toll and then just working almost 24 hours a day, seven days a week, is it took a huge toll on her. We can look at the photo from when she applied for her United States visa, and she looks radiant and glowing to the day that she was rescued. Um, And then now... She's a complete 180 and looks like her former self. But we, doing interviews of individuals who encountered her in the neighborhood, a law enforcement officer who witnessed her walking the kids one day, uh, we've had descriptions where people talked about 
they would describe her as a beat dog. They would describe her as an old homeless woman. She's younger than 40, and they would people would estimate that she was in her 60s. The day that she was rescued, the victim coordinator talked about the smell. She just didn't smell clean. And it was, this was just two years of just not being able to properly eat, properly bathe, probably take care of herself. And it just took a huge toll. Now you see her and she is amazing. She is smiling again. She um, has such a excitement for life. It was two years also of enduring verbal and physical abuse. It was two years of having uh, her employers, having the Musabundas tell her that she was stupid all the time um, and telling her that she was worthless. Is the victim still residing now in the United States? And hopefully she's receiving the medical care that she had expected? Yes, the victim is still in the U.S. She, at that time, there is something in the United States that's called continued presence. So if you have a victim of human trafficking, you can offer them a temporary immigration benefit, which is called continued presence, that leaves them in the United States while you further your investigation. And they, it's a mechanism that is designed to make them self-sufficient at the end, financially, emotionally supportive. So it's how they can receive medical treatment if necessary, therapy if needed. Um, some of these things to hopefully make them whole again. It was actually a doctor at Ben Taub who I believe pro bono did surgery and actually fixed her arm. You've worked for two federal law enforcement agencies. What advice would you have for somebody either going into law enforcement or considering it as a career? I always recommend that people do as much research as possible. There's so many agencies out there. Everybody's pretty familiar with the ones that have TV shows or been prominently um, portrayed in movies, but there's so many more out there. So I would, I always tell people to research, think about what your passions are, think about what your interests are. If you are an accountant, somebody into numbers, there's amazing agencies that deal with money laundering and financial crimes. That way, if you have, if you're more interested in going overseas, then there's different agencies Obviously, DSS, we can send you overseas, but there's other agencies that have those positions as well. But it's also like any other profession is to take some time to actually think about the impact that it might have on your personal life as well in terms of if the agency that you're looking at has a lot of travel or if it requires you to move a lot. I think some people glamorize certain agencies and then don't realize some of the realities of kind of being on call 24-7 or having to transfer or having to move or some of the travel that's involved. Special Agent Langston, thank you for being on the Go Law Enforcement Podcast. Thanks. If you're looking for a job in law enforcement, check out the largest listing of law enforcement jobs on golawenforcement.com. The requirements to be a police officer are different for every state. To find out if you meet the requirements to be a police officer in your state, take a short three-question quiz by going to golawenforcement.com forward slash quiz. That's golawenforcement.com forward slash quiz. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.